Well, let's take our Bibles this morning for one last time. No, not your Bibles for one last time, but one last time in 2 Thessalonians as we finish the book of 2 Thessalonians. Our text this morning will be chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. Listen to Paul as he begins, as he finishes up the book, moved by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. Then he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we go to our text this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word, and we thank you that each part of it is, of it is inspired, each part of it is important, and each part of it teaches us truths that we need to know. And so we praise and thank you for this piece of scripture that we have this morning, and again, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us these truths and make them close to our hearts and get, grant us the ability to grasp them, to understand them, and to implement them in our lives, I pray. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, if you're a parent, one of the joys you have as a parent is to watch your children grow up and to mature. And one of the things you desire for them is for them to grow up and to be functioning adults. And if you're a believer, you certainly want your children to come to salvation. And so as a parent, you instruct your children and you give them all the information that you can. But you will always find that somehow what you teach and what they learn are not always the same. And in fact, it takes a while for all that information to work its way through them. And in fact, you as a parent are actually helpless to change your child. You can give them all the information you can. You can put them in all the greatest environments. And you can try as much as you can to change them and to mature them. But ultimately, it's not up to you. There's something that has to happen with inside them that grasps that truth and implements in their lives. In fact, there's something really, nothing maybe more grotesque than a person that doesn't grow up. You can only imagine if a baby had the body of, of a 25-year-old male. We would all run, wouldn't we? Can you imagine having that kind of temper and that kind of lack of self-control in a body that's able to destroy? And we could say that spiritually, when people don't grow up, maybe it's just as grotesque. In fact, maybe we should see it exactly the same way. Well, spiritual maturity certainly was on Paul's mind as he wrote to the Thessalonians. If we remember back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, this is God's will for you, your what? Sanctification. 
And really, we could say this is talking about growing up as a believer. And so Paul is always concerned that his converts and those in the church will reach spiritual maturity. And so Paul has done this through 2 Thessalonians, where he has given instructions to the Thessalonians. And he has given them everything that he can do, but he recognizes that ultimately he can't mature them. He can't make them take the teaching and make it so that they grow spiritually. It is something that must be done by God. It is something that he cannot do. And so Paul has, throughout this book, given instruction and then prayed for the Thessalonians, and he has prayed that God would ultimately make it happen. Because Paul knows, just like any good parent, no matter how much you instruct, ultimately, if God does not work in the heart of your child, they will not take the truths that you give them. And so Paul, back in chapter 1, after instructing them about judgment and retribution and eternal destruction, he says, To this end we pray for you always that God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. In other words, Paul says, here's some truth. Now, now I pray that God will enable it to happen. I can give it to you, but without God's working, it won't take place. Chapter 2, he speaks about the, the career of the Antichrist and his deception. And he says in verse 16, Now may, the God, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, may he comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and, and deed. In other words, we need the enabling of God. I can give you this information and then I can tell you what you need to do, but guess what? I need God, you need God's help. Chapter 3, he talks about faithfulness of his own ministry. And then he says, And may the Lord direct your hearts into love of our God and the steadfastness of Christ. And only God can produce in you these same things. And so here in chapter 3, again, after giving them instructions on how to live, Paul now closes this section in this book with this prayer and a benediction that, they would, that God would enable them to grow spiritually. And Paul wants them to grow spiritually. And he, as he gives this prayer and benediction, he asks for four blessings that God can give them that will ensure that they will mature. And there are four blessings that we as believers should seek. There are four blessings that we should seek from God so that we will actually grow to maturity in Christ. And he will lay these out in these verses. And he first says, first of all, you need to seek the peace of God. There's nothing worse than a believer who is all over the place, upset and anxious all the time. And all his energies are spent being anxious rather than being about the Lord's business. Then he says, I want you to actually seek the presence of God. I want the Lord to be with you. I want you to seek his presence and for him to have that controlling power in your life. And then in, he kind of interrupts his prayer in chapters in verse 17, and he says, actually, I want you guys to know the word of God. I want you to know I'm writing this 
so that you know for sure what is the truth. And he says, you need to seek the truth of God's word. You need to know it in order to grow to maturity. And then third, the fourthly, he says simply this, saturate your life with grace. Recognize that everything in your life is by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace God's goodness to you and, and is enabling in your life. And when you do that, you will grow to maturity. So this morning, we will see those four blessings that we are to seek in our lives so that we come to spiritual maturity. So Paul says, as he begins in verse 16, may, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Now it's interesting that Paul here prays for something that God has already promised to give us. And this is how Paul knows that his prayer will be answered because he prays for what God wants. So Paul is not praying to a God who says, man, I don't know about giving peace to them guys. I think I'm just going to hold that back and they better show me that they're, you know, they deserve it. But God is actually a God who wants to give you peace. He, he, it's something that he promises to give you. And so he says, I want you to experience God's peace. So he begins this verse simply with now may, and he's transitioning from that exhortation that he had just given and command to a petition in prayer here. And he's turning to the Lord and he's expressing a prayer on their behalf that they would experience this promised peace. Well, the question then becomes, maybe we should just ask this question, what is peace? What is peace? Because if we don't know what peace is, we don't know what, what to expect. Well, the world would define peace as something like this. Maybe just putting words together, it's tranquility and quietness, contentment and well-being in your circumstances, an attitude of calm, settled quietness, that comes from good circumstances. Now that's a pretty shallow definition of peace because all we have to do is turn up the circumstances and turn and make everything happen so that it's not the way you want it. And where does that peace go? Right out the door, right? Because if, you're, if, you're, if you have this, this peace that's based upon your circumstances, all we have to do is what? Change your circumstances. When you put your peace on things that are transitory, you can expect that your peace will be transitory. But Paul is not talking about that kind of peace. He's not talking about a peace that can be even drummed up in our flesh. He's not talking about a peace that you can get by taking a pill, produced by alcohol, by material gains, whatever that thing is for you. He's not talking about a fleeting peace. But what kind of peace is he talking about here? Not, the not human, fragile, circumstantial peace. But he's talking here about a spiritual peace, true peace, deep down peace. 
It's an attitude of the heart and mind that calmly, confidently believes and thus knows that all is well between the soul and God. Now, we often think that peace is, is about, you know, feeling tranquil about everything. But the peace that he's talking about is the peace of God that pervades the soul of a man who knows that he stands in right relationship with God. It's confident that everything between God and myself is, is right, that I'm in right standing. He's in loving control of my life and my time and my eternity. Everything about me is ultimately right between me and God. It has nothing to do with anything anybody says or does. It has nothing to do with the circumstances of life. But it has everything to do with my relationship between God and me. I am right with God. Nothing can change that. I am a child of God. It is a peace that is given to the children of God. And he says, that peace is for you. In other words, when you have that peace, nothing in the world can take that away. Now, what it does not mean is you just don't feel pain. All right, sorry. It doesn't mean that you don't cry. But what it does mean is that the most important thing that in your life is secure. And so if, it, if your relationship with God is not the most important thing in the world, you won't get this peace. And so Paul says, God, the God of peace, grant you peace. May the God of peace himself. Now you'll notice this. He defines this peace in several ways here. And first of all, you'll notice that he calls this the peace or, or the peace that comes from God. In other words, it, is a, it comes divinely from God himself. God is the one who grants this peace. He is the one that is, is the author of this peace. In other words, you can't make up this peace in your flesh. You can't manufacture it. It is something that is actually birthed in God himself. And he says, it is, it is divine. It comes from him, from God himself. Now, one of the things that we must recognize is that peace is actually an attribute of God. Peace is an attribute of God. We often don't think of that. We think of him as loving and just and righteous. But he's also peaceful. He is a God of peace. Now, when you think about that, that means that God is never stressed. I know. It sounds obvious, but God is never stressed. He's never, he, he, he doesn't suffer from anxiety. He doesn't worry. He never has doubts. He never has doubts about his actions, his behaviors, the things that he does. God is never in discord with himself. He's never arguing with himself. God is completely unified and at peace. There is no conflict there. He's completely in charge. 
right? He doesn't need to be because he has no surprises. He's omniscient. He knows what's happening. He's declared what's going to happen. He's completely in charge. He doesn't change. Nothing threatens him. Nothing causes him to be upset. And so God himself is peace. He says he is the Lord of peace. Literally, the Lord of the peace. And maybe it's the best way to describe God's relationship to us because he is the one who produced peace with us. He is the source of peace. And Paul wants, and what Paul wants is that the Lord of peace would give his kind of peace to the Thessalonians. He wants him to give his kind of peace. Now it says the Lord of peace here, probably referring to our Lord Jesus Christ, consistent with his use of Lord, but we know that all members of the Trinity ultimately are peaceful. They all bring peace. And so we know that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in bringing peace. Christ purchased it, the Father sent the Son, the Holy Spirit is that source of peace in our lives. So he says this peace is is divine, it must come from God himself. In fact, it says himself, the idea is that God himself is the one who brings this peace. Now, secondly, he says that this peace here is is a gift. It must be granted. In other words, it's not, we talked about this, you can't can't take this upon yourself. It must be granted to you by God. He is the one who will, will grant it to his children as a gift. May the Lord of peace himself, what? grant you peace. He's the one who gives it. He's the one who meters it out. He's the one who is the source. Psalm 85, 85, 8 says, I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. In other words, God grants this peace to his children. God grants this peace to his children And that means that God does not grant this peace to the unbeliever. God does not grant his peace to the unbeliever. It makes sense, right? He grants it to his children because it is ultimately a peace that says my soul is right with God. Now the world will try to fake peace, right? They say peace, peace right? The Lord's not going to judge. They say, well, actually, I'm a good person. God won't judge me. They build things around themselves to make them feel safe. They have a false sense of peace, but they do not have the supernatural peace that comes from God. So this peace is not, is not only divine, it's not only a gift, but he also has this little word here, continually. In other words, 
This peace is continually available to the believer. This isn't, again, something that is only made for a certain period of time in your life or a certain time during the day. It's meant for all the time. In other words, it is continually without interruption available for us. There's a, a teaching in psychology that says, well, if you suffer from anxiety and you don't have peace, you schedule some time to think about it, and then you forget about it for the rest of the day. In essence, it says, don't have peace for that half an hour. Schedule your sin, and then forget about it the rest of the day. But God says, actually, continually means his peace is available, what? 24-7. He doesn't say, except for half an hour a day, morning and evening, where you get to be, have your peace disturbed and you get to be anxious. He says continually all the time. Now Paul prays that they might experience this peace continually. What's the implication of that? That they don't always experience it. That they don't always experience it. And so we know that there are things that interrupt and can keep us from feeling the peace of God. We know that sin and our flesh gets in the way and as we, as we are not in fellowship with God, we, what? we lose that peace. When we lose focus on God, we lose that peace. So how do we get that peace? How do we get back to God? Well, first of all, we can simply learn to trust in God. The psalmist says, why art thou disquieted, O my soul? What? Hope in God. Hope in God. Why are you upset and troubled? Have you forgotten who God is? And so there's a necessity for us to go back and to look at God and to see who he is and to ask him to grant us the faith in order to what? To trust in him and to put our focus back on him. We've talked about sin. You need to turn from sin and you need to be obedient. You won't have peace if you're in sin. They don't go together. Leviticus says, keep my statue, obey my commandments. And then he says, and I will give you what? Peace. Peace comes through what? Obedience. You will never have God's peace if you're continuing to walk in known sin. Now again, we want to separate the idea that you're, you need to be sinly, sinless perfection in order to, to know God's peace. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you need to be staying away from the sins that you know. Because we know that we all sin and those are covered by the cross and we're not even aware of that. Don't be, don't be worried about the sins you don't know about. Be worried about the sins you do know. And the more you read the word of God and the more you study it, you will start to have that mirror of God placed up against you to show you who you are and you will see more and God will reveal more. But deal with what you know. Now 
Romans tells us that we are to do good. We are to do good. In other words, do righteous deeds. Deeds produced by what? The fruit of the Spirit, which is peace. In other words, we need those attitude fruits that will now produce righteous works. And as we do those things, the peace of God will ultimately flood over our souls. James says in James 3.18, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who what? Make peace. Living in according to the word of God, living according to heavenly wisdom, living according to God's revealed standard of righteousness, what? Brings peace. And so that we often want the peace of God, but we're not willing to actually do the things that are necessary to get in, to have God's peace. What we're actually looking for is for our feelings to be, to make everything soothe us and so that we're not upset. But oftentimes we're upset about the wrong things. And we're not focused on the important things. And when we recognize that our relationship with God is more important than anything else, it puts everything else into perspective. He says, finally, the fourth thing that he describes it as is that it's available in every circumstance. He says continually, and then he says in every circumstance. In other words, God's peace isn't just for some times. It's not just for the good times. In fact, it is, it is actually, God's peace is immune and unassailable to the things that happen in this world. It cannot be taken away. God has promised it to you, and he says, in every circumstances, you can keep the peace of God. In other words, you can know that you are right with God. You can know that your eternity is secure, and you don't have to worry about what takes place. Because the most important thing in your life has already taken place, and he says, in every circumstance, not some circumstances, there are no exceptions to this clause. Because we, we all like to think that we have exceptions to this clause, right? Well, if you knew what I was going through, if you knew what happened to me, if you knew how unfair things were, right? And you would be, you, you know, and, uh, he doesn't say accept. There's no accept clause here. He says this peace is for every believer in every circumstance. And so we must recognize that we, our eyes must go off our circumstances and where? Back to God. To God and our relationship with Him. Paul says, this is what will help you mature. A believer who sits in the peace of God is stable. He's not all over the place. He's not up and down. He's not controlled by his emotions. He's not controlled by his circumstances. He's someone who has something that's different. And he is able to use his energies 
in the service of God instead of his services in being upset and angry and anxious and worry. And oftentimes our worry and our, our upsetness actually drains us of the energy of the jobs that we are to, to, to do today. And we spend more energy worrying about what's taking place and what's happening in the future or what has taken place than living for the glory of God right now. And the peace of God keeps us from using all of our energy to worry about other things. And so it stabilizes us and we become productive believers. Well, secondly, Paul says, not only are we to seek the peace of God, but he says we are to seek the presence of God. He ends this little verse 16 with this phrase, the Lord be with you all. The Lord be with you all. And Paul now calls on them to experience the presence of God. He says, I want you to know that God is with you. I want you to, know, to seek it and to recognize that God is with you at all times through everything. Jesus promised that he would be with you. Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you what always, even to the end of the age. Jesus Christ said, listen, I will be with you. I will be alongside you in every step of your Christian walk. Now the question becomes, how do I experience the presence of God? How do I experience the presence of God? Now for most of us, we're going to be thinking, I want to feel something. I want to feel something. All right, and so your your first we, 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 because we like that, right? I mean, we we like to feel emotion, we like to feel connectedness, but ultimately, how do we feel the presence of God? The only way that you are really going to feel the presence of God in your life, now listen to this, is to see his working in your life in obedience to what he's called you to do. Now, that produces a feeling, but it is not the feeling that you feel. In other words, when Christ came, he said, I will be with you always. How, did he, how was he going to be with you? He said, well, I will send what? Another, right? I will send you a, a helper to help you in your Christian life. In other words, I will empower you to live the Christian life. He said, you're going to experience the presence of God when you what? Submit to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ and allow him to control your life. Now that will produce the feeling of God's presence with you, but the, the feeling is counterfeit apart from the reality of having the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. And he will then empower you to live the Christian life as you should. He will strengthen you. 
He will strengthen you against temptation. The Lord is with you how? Because he is there ruling your life, empowering you. You have the Holy Spirit, therefore what? There's no temptation taking you what? As, but as common to man. But the Lord is faithful. Who will never allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will always make a way of escape that you might what? Be able to bear it. He doesn't say he's going to take it away. He says he'll make you strong enough to, to carry it. He'll strengthen you to worship. He'll strengthen you for perseverance. He'll strengthen you for trials. In other words, this is how we feel the presence of God as we look at our lives and we see how he is working in our lives. We know that he is near. And so as we, as we recognize that, we recognize that he is here to help. And so you want to know the presence of God in your life? Allow him to control your life. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Let him enable you to be obedient. Then you know you have the presence of God. It's not some feeling that God just sends down out of the sky. He actually gives you markers and he lets you see what it is because as you see him working in your life and enabling you to do things that you never were able to do before, that's not me. Yeah, that's him. That's how you know the presence of God is working in your life. Oftentimes we, we get into trouble and we get into circumstances and we forget we forget where to look. But oftentimes, if we will just look back in our life, we'll see where God has taken us. We know that he is with us. And though we may not feel it, we can measure it. Sometimes we're just like, well, I'm not sure if he's here or not. Really? Was he with you up till now? Does he not promise to be with you in the future? Does he not continue to give you victory over these things? If he does, you have the presence of God. And so Paul says, seek the presence of God. Seek his control in your life. This is how you'll grow to maturity. Is an understanding that God is with you through all circumstances and he is enabling you to live Christ-like in every circumstance. And when you do that, you'll begin to grow. Because you will never be without power. You will never doubt that he is with you and you will move forward in your walk. Well, Paul now interrupts his prayer petition here with something that is on his heart. He begins in verse 17. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. Now, it's interesting because Paul's concern here, and his concern has always been, is truth. He's giving them, he was correcting their doctrine, remember, about the day of the Lord and their fear that they were in the day of the Lord. False teachers had come. They had come to Thessalonica and they had taught that the, they were in the day of the Lord. Paul said, 
that he wanted them to be careful because they were quickly shaken from their composure and disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. And so there had been a message or a spirit or a letter that had come to the Thessalonians saying that they were in the day of the Lord. And Paul is now wanting to correct that. And he wants him to know what the truth is. He doesn't want them to be deceived by another letter that they think is coming from him or some truth that has been, quote, revealed by the Holy Spirit to someone that is not the truth. And so Paul writes that he wants, that he now writes to make sure that they know that they can know the truth, that they can have the word of God for sure. And so Paul wants them to know what the word of God is, and he wants them to know for sure that they can hold on to it. Now Paul is, has been writing this letter, and he's like many of the authors in used to write, they would have a secretary that could write for them. Oftentimes those persons had good penmanship, they could write very quickly. Some of them had a shorthand to make sure that they got all of the words down. And Paul has been dictating this letter. But now as he comes to the end of this letter, he picks up the pen himself and he writes this greeting. Now Paul emphasis here he says, is, is, why does he do this? It's a distinguishing mark in my letters. In other words, I want you to help you to identify what letters are coming from me. I want you to know for sure what's authentic truth so that you can grow in maturity and know how you are to behave. He says, I do this in every letter. He probably signed 1 Thessalonians. Now, there's some debate as to which books came first. I would probably put Galatians first and then First and Second Thessalonians. But these are his early letters. But he says, this is how I signed these books. This is how you know. He says, this is the way I write. So the emphasis is not on the content of what he's writing. He's not trying to tell you, here's... here's you can tell by what I've written. Or, and he's not trying to say, here, there's a secret code if you see this. But rather, look at my handwriting. Right? He said in Galatians chapter uh, 6, see what, what, with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So whether Paul was not as dainty as the rabbis, whether he was, was blind and need, needed to write big letters, there was something distinctive about his writing. And maybe the Thessalonians didn't clue in on this. You think they might have, because we know that in letters in that century that their authors always began and gave their identity at the beginning of the letter, right? We talked about the AAA greetings that Paul gave. He gave the, the author, the addressees, and the address, right? He would come and say, Paul, to the Ephesians, grace to you. But here, in, in, in a very exceptional way, Paul actually puts his name at the very end of the book. Literally, he says, this greeting is in my own hand, Paul. So Paul puts his name right at the very end, and, and the emphasis is, is, this greeting is in my writing, Paul. He wants you to emphasize, and this is different. 
And so what Paul may have implied in 1 Thessalonians, he makes absolutely abundantly clear in 2 Thessalonians. This is the mark of authenticity. You must not have get, got, gotten it right because you got another letter from someone else and you, you thought it was genuine. This is how you know it's genuine. And so Paul is concerned here that they would know the truth. So I guess all we have to do then, if we want to know what the true word of God is, is we have to find those letters that Paul wrote. If we can just find his signature, we'll have them too, right? Well, we don't have any original manuscripts left. But we do have the tested word of God that has been recognized from the church, basically from the very first century, that has stood the test of time. We have a book that has been recognized because of its authority. It doesn't speak and it doesn't ask. It speaks with, with a, an authority that is assumed. It is a book that has lasted through centuries as God has kept it. It is a book that has, by its very nature and its power, changed lives. It is effective in people's lives. People are transformed. People are saved through the word of God. And though we don't have any more apostles sending us letters with being authenticated by their signature, we already have one given to us by the Holy Spirit that has been authenticated by the church by time and its power and authority. And so for us, then we are to what? Search the word of God. In other words, if we're going to grow spiritually, we have the true inerrant word of God, the complete revelation of God. We don't need to go anywhere else to find truth for truth and godliness. This is the only truth that you can know for sure. It is the only truth that you need to grow spiritually. And so our job is to what? To know the word of God. And Paul was concerned with the Thessalonians, you guys need to know what is genuine and true because it is only the truth that the Holy Spirit will use to bring you to maturity and enable you to do the things that God has called you to do. Ultimately, we are called then to contend what? For the faith once delivered. We now are to guard the treasure and the church itself is to be the guardian and pillar of truth. And we have the word of God. Each one of us now has a copy of it. We need to study it. We need to know it. This is the only way to grow. You cannot be a mature believer if you do not know scripture. I don't care how much you say to me, but I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just all on fire for him. None of that guarantees that you are what? Mature. Remember in 1 John, he talks about little children, right? You know that you're in. In other words, mama, daddy, you know that you're in. Young men, what? You are what? You have overcome the evil one because you know what? The word of God. And then fathers, you have known him from the beginning. 
In other words, the way to maturity is must go through the word of God. And so if we're going to mature as believers, we must what? Know the word of God. We must study it. We have that inerrant word of God. We can trust it. Therefore, let us be those who are in the word so that we continue to grow and come to maturity. Well, so Paul has said to us, listen, you need to seek peace, the presence of God, seek God's word. Now he says, be saturated by the grace of God. He ends with this greeting as he goes back to his prayer. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The Lord Jesus Christ, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So the question then becomes, what is grace? What is grace? If if he wants you to have it, we need to know what it is. Grace is God's goodness, God's benevolence given to those who don't deserve it. And for us, it begins with God's goodness in the fact that he gave us grace through Jesus Christ and he saved us. It comes to us through the Spirit of God as he brings saving grace to us. God reaches out to us. He's the one who reaches to men and he puts his grace upon us, his favor upon us, and he saves us. But here Paul says, he's speaking to believers, I want you to know what? The grace of God. May the grace of God be on you. In other words, God's grace, and we've talked about this before, does not stop at salvation. God's grace continues to uphold you through your Christian walk. God's goodness is not, does not stop. His goodness towards you doesn't stop at salvation. It continues through your Christian walk. And it is an enabling grace, an enabling grace, a grace that gives you the ability and God's goodness on you. To, it helps you endure. It gives you power for service. It helps you through trials. It helps you through persecution. And God's grace continues to strengthen you and continues to help you through your life. Paul said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into the service, even though I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. It was the grace of our Lord that what did that. God saved Paul. God put him into service. That was God's grace to Paul. Continuing enabling him to do what God had set him out. God set his goodness upon him. And so Paul says, I want the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, to be extended to you. And he says, be with you all. Now that's... That's different than what he said in 1 Thessalonians. He's added an all here. Why do you think he needs to add the all? Because Paul wants the grace to go to everyone in the church. He doesn't just want it to the faithful ones. He wants ultimately what? God's faithfulness to go and grace to be extended to even those who weren't willing to work, even those who were disobedient. Paul says, I want the grace of God to grip them. I want God's grace to work through their lives. 
And it is only through God's grace that we are able to achieve anything for his glory. And so we must rely on his grace. Stop trying to work for God. Stop trying to make, earn God's favor. God's grace covers your sin. Stop thinking that somehow that you're not good enough for God to use. His grace is upon you. His grace covers those sins. Satan loves to keep you from coming back to him and to serving him and to sit under his grace because he'd rather have you pouting in the corner about how bad you are. But you stand before God in grace and you continue to serve him in grace. And anything that's accomplished in your life is by his grace. Anything that's of eternal value comes from his grace, not from your effort and not from your flesh. And so Paul says, have your life saturated with grace. Walk in grace. Go to God for grace. Recognize what he has done for you. Recognize what he is enabling you to do. Think of all of the blessings in your life and recognize those come from what? Him. When you have success, that's his grace. When you fail, that's his grace. When you are pleasing to him, that's his grace. Remember, he is, it is his grace that we walk in. When you sin, his grace is extended to you. Paul says, recognize God's grace. Walk in his grace. Seek his grace. And you will grow. So Paul here has laid out for us four things we are to seek. Four blessings that God gives to us. His word his presence, his peace, and his grace. These are God's enabling for us to grow to maturity. Let us be those who seek those. Let us be those who follow after those. Let us be those who take hold of those blessings in our lives so that we will be able to do what God has called us to do, that we will grow to spiritual maturity and live in obedience for his glory. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you for Paul's prayer and petition here as he ends. As he prays for these blessings for the Thessalonian believers, these blessings that are available to us. And I pray that you would make us a church that seeks after these, that we would be individuals who would seek after your peace, that we would be those who seek your presence, that are in your word being fed and living by your grace. Continue to work among us, I pray, and help us to come to maturity, to the fullness of the man Christ Jesus, I pray. In your name, amen.